You've got questions. Oh, big questions. We've got answers. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to The Line of Fire. It is Friday, and that means you've got questions, we've got answers. I've got a bunch of questions lined. I'm sorry, not taking calls today. I I know you're disappointed, but we've opened the phone lines a whole lot to get to a lot of extra calls, a lot of extra days as much as possible. But I've got some great questions lined up on Twitter and Facebook, so don't post them, don't call, sit back, enjoy the show as I answer your big questions theology questions today. Deplorable Ron asked this on Twitter. What's your opinion about praying the imprecatory Psalm, Psalm 109, 69, et cetera, in light of the fact that they're consistent with the theology of the covenants of warnings from Old Testament prophets and with other New Testament imprecations from Paul and Jesus and that Jesus himself quoted from them. So how do I feel about praying through Psalms, cursing one's enemies? May the Lord bring this on that one in judgment and destruction. I do understand that when God brings judgment on wicked Babylon, that God's people and the angels shout and sing hallelujah and celebrate his righteous ways. And I fully recognize there are times, let's let's have a scenario like this. ISIS has kidnapped a group of Christian children and is about to kill them in cold blood in front of their parents and then kill their parents simply because they are Christians. And just at that moment, the earth opens up and just swallows up the ISIS terrorists. Would we not rejoice and praise God when we saw that video? Would we not say, you are a good Lord, you are faithful, you deliver your people, you're a righteous judge? Yeah, it's a shame those people are lost, but God judged them before they took innocent lives. How would we feel? How would we feel if we heard that there was a plane crash? And, and it was filled with pro-life teenagers on their way to D.C. to meet with the president uh, and, and a bunch of kids with Down syndrome to meet with the president, urging him to continue his pro-life efforts. And you heard the plane went down and crashed and everyone was killed. You think, what? How could that be? Young people, Christian young people, godly kids, kids with Down syndrome with a heart for for the hurting and what a shame. And then newscaster comes on. Actually, we gave you the wrong number of the flight. It was actually this flight that went down and on it were the worst Satanists in the country. I I mean, real hardcore devil worshipers who actually sacrificed babies. They've never been caught doing it, but they actually do it. And they were going there to the white house to put a curse on all pro-life legislators and to try to physically stop these kids from going in to testify, and their plane went down, you'd feel different. Differently, you'd say, what a shame that they're lost and dead. It's too late for them. But you would feel differently about it. So I understand the sentiment behind it. I understand the sentiment behind saying, Lord, may justice come on my enemies. However, I personally could not pray those for anyone that I knew 
for for any anyone that I had problems with, my prayer is for their repentance and salvation. I'm going to bless those who curse me. I'm going to pray for those who despitefully use me. I'm going to follow the example of Jesus on the cross as he's being crucified, saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I'm going to follow his example laid out in 1 Peter 2 that although he was reviled, he didn't revile back and he set an example for us. You say, no, no, I'm not talking about reviling. I'm talking about praying this. I understand. I pray for the, the kingdom of God to come. I understand that comes with judgment. I pray even so come Lord Jesus, understanding that when he comes, he will destroy the wicked. He'll come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who don't know God. I understand all that. However, I would pray for anyone, for my worst enemies, till their dying day, God bring them to repentance. God save them. God change their heart as opposed to God judge them. All right. Is there a time to turn someone over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh? As Paul advocated in 1 Corinthians 5, even if that were the case, I still would not pray those psalms. I understand the logic behind it. I understand the rationale behind it. But this is why I wouldn't do it. So it's a fine question. It's a worthy question. And, and it's one that will continue to be debated in the church. But that's, that's my understanding, my response. Jenny, Jesus suffered and died for our sins. Was the suffering greater than the suffering millions face daily? It just can't be the physical pain he experienced in death that makes a sacrifice like none other. He knew he would live again. Hope this question makes sense. Thank you. Yeah, of course it makes sense. And I have read uh, Jewish critics saying it's not a sacrifice if you know you're going to live on the other side of death. It's not a sacrifice if you're, if you're a god dying and you're, you're going to resurrect yourself. Flip it over, though, and I would say that his suffering was far more acute than anything we could ever imagine. That being God, his capacity to suffer, was far more than we could ever imagine or relate to. I remember being on a train going into New York City, going into to work when I was a teenager doing this internship in New York City in the, the DA's office, district attorney's office. My, my dad was a lawyer in the New York Supreme Court, got me in there. And I, I, was, I was going in and one day I had a really bad toothache. I remember thinking if I could just take one part of my toothache and put it on each person here, it would dissipate. Nobody would feel it. And then another day I was, I was sad about something, you know, some relational thing I was sad about and the emotional pain. I remember thinking the same thing. If I just spread it out about everybody, it, it would disappear, dissipate. And then it hit me, turn that around. What if I was taking the pain of everyone on the train? And I began to think of what Jesus did. Now, I don't believe that at one and the same time, he felt all the illnesses of humanity, of the entire human race, that he physically felt them at the same time. I, I don't, I don't envision that. And, and yes, the suffering of being scourged and crucified was horrific, but there must have been an acute spiritual, emotional suffering beyond anything we can imagine. Taking on the sin of the world, putting himself in a place of, of becoming the object of divine judgment, uh, coming into a place of what would have felt like spiritual alienation. I don't believe we could ever imagine in a million lifetimes because of our limited capacity, the degree to which he suffered on our behalf. That is love. That is grace. That is the foundation of our salvation. When we put our trust in him, we are saved utterly, wonderfully, gloriously saved. Thank you for asking. Barbara, if God created everything and said it was good, then where did evil come from? I never found anyone who can answer this question. It's a very disturbing concept to think that God created evil to you. If not, then where did evil come from? The one who struggles with her faith. Barbara, thank you for asking honest questions. 
And I'm terribly sorry that you struggle, but I can understand these are weighty issues. Clearly, God did not create evil. Even ask yourself, what is evil? Is, is evil an actual entity? Is it an actual thing? Or is it something that is done, something that is thought, something that is felt, something that is lived out? You follow me? In other words, is there something, God created something and called the, this, called the thing itself evil? God now created evil. Is, is that, is that even, uh, what would that even mean? What would that look like? Like a lump of evil or a thing of evil. Rather, evil is something actualized by choice. Evil is something actualized by will. So here's the mystery. God truly gave the angels free will. Truly. When he gave them commands, do this, don't do this, they were in a perfect world with a perfect God, but they literally had the power to say yes or no. That, that, and you would say that's good, right? Other, otherwise, we're just like robots. We've just been lobotomized. Yes, Lord, I love you, Lord. You are good, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I will serve you, Lord. What's that? That's not relationship. That's not love. Would you want someone like that? You know, Barbara's guy that you got your eyes set on, but he doesn't like you at all, but you want to marry him? And, and somebody you know, puts a chip in his brain. Barbara, I love you. Barbara, I only want you. I will marry you. You will be my wife forever. No, you, you want that, that he really loves you, right? So God created angels with the capacity to have free will and Adam and Eve with free will. They literally could choose good or evil. You say, well, what does it mean choose good or evil? In other words, they could literally say yes or no. When they said no, evil was actualized. It wasn't that God created evil. God created us with a will to choose and to say yes or no. Now, now doesn't that make sense? Because he wants to have relationship with us. And, and Barbara, that's why you have questions because he gave you freedom to think and to explore. And that's what you want with your children. You want them to obey you, but ultimately you want them to grow to the point where they make the right choices because they're the right choices. So you give them that freedom. Now, since Adam and Eve were fallen, we don't have perfect freedom. We're flawed, but they had perfect freedom. The angels had perfect freedom. When they chose to say no, at that moment, evil was actualized. Evil in that sense came into being when the angel that we now know as Satan chose to go his own way. That is the mystery of free will. It was true freedom. When the desire comes up to say no, which is a choice we could make, now evil becomes alive. I hope that helps. And I hope you can get settled in in a more secure way in your faith. Laura, I've heard the argument recently that Paul has been misunderstood throughout most of Christianity, that Christians should still follow the law of Moses. The people making this argument said that while it's no longer required for salvation, the law should still be kept by Christians. Okay, number one, Paul has often been misunderstood, and Paul's writings are deep and complex, but we see how Paul lives in the book of Acts as a Jew. He continued to live as a Jew, and he never told Jewish believers don't live as Jews. Never said that. We live in a different relationship to the law. We live by the, the new life of the spirit. We live by the spirit, not the letter. We live by the law being written on our hearts. We have a different relationship to the law than a traditional Jew would, and we don't follow all of Jewish traditions. But Paul never told Jewish believers that they should stop 
living by the law, just to live in the newness of the spirit and to understand it was not for salvation. But he absolutely told Gentiles they don't need to. He absolutely told Gentiles that you come into equal standing with the Jewish people in the Messiah without having to keep all of the Jewish laws and traditions. That is absolutely clear. And those who advocate that Gentile Christians are obligated to keep the Sinai covenant are quite mistaken. My book, The Real Kosher Jesus, will help you here, where I deal with the genius of Paul as he got this message, this understanding that the Gentiles through the Messiah could be co-heirs with the Jews and, and stand in equality, stand in equality with Jewish believers as, as equals without having to keep the law. This is what now happened through the Messiah coming into the world. So those that push you in that direction are mistaken. Don't let them push you in a way that violates your own conscience and your own convictions. Get my book, The Real Culture Jesus. You'll find helpful. God of light, hear our cry. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome back to the Friday edition of The Line of Fire. Michael Brown, your joyful voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution, answering some big theological, biblical, spiritual questions that have been posted on Twitter and Facebook. So don't, don't post them now. I have got more than enough to get through, but getting through as many as I can. Uh, this one from Metaskipper. This is admittedly more speculative than serious, but if there is alien life or alternate, alternative universes out there that God has created, was the sun's once and for all sacrifice effective for them too? Or would the sun have to be incarnate and die again in those contexts? Well, if in fact God's heart and plan was to redeem fallen beings that had a free will, then you would understand the son would have to take on their form. Jesus took on human form to die for the human race. Jesus became the last, the second Adam to undo what Adam had done. So theoretically, that would be the case. But the other view would be that if there were beings on other planets that had, they were moral beings and that had free will, they might sin and rebel, and that's the end of them, like the fallen angels. In other words, no redemption for them. That would be another potential scenario. But the blood of Jesus avails because it is the blood, it is the human race, it is our fallen world into which the Son came. He didn't become an angel, right? He, he didn't become an animal. He became a human being to die for other human beings. All right, let's... Uh, uh, keep going here. Oops, I, I just lost my thread here. Let me pull it up again and start scrolling down here. I'm going to be on Twitter for a bit. And then after that, I'm going to go over to Facebook. Oh, come on. Let's get down here. I'm just trying to do it in order. Otherwise, I'll be missing some things. Okay, here we go. Uh, Ian, how would you describe what is translated as slavery in the Old Testament? How is it different from the recent example of slavery in the U.S.? There has been a lot of debate among scholars. The Hebrew word eved, should that be translated slave or servant? On the one hand, it is the word used for us serving God, right? We are servants of the Lord. The word can also mean to worship. That is the flip side of our 
serving, serving slash worship. So Exodus 23, and you will worship slash serve the Lord your God of Iraq and he'll bless your food and your water. And I will remove sickness from your midst. So worship, serve, go hand in hand. That is the root avad, the noun eved, servant. But it is somewhere in between servant and slave. If you said indentured servant, you'd be adding a bit more to the words than you want to add. But let's just take a look, for example. Uh, I'll, I'll go over to my Accordance Bible software, and I'll go over to Exodus chapter 21 in my window of Bible translation, all right? And uh, so we start in the King James, Exodus 21.2, if, if thou buy an Hebrew servant, New King James, if you buy a Hebrew servant, N-A-S-B, if you buy a Hebrew slave, ESV, Hebrew slave, uh, whoops, hit the wrong spot there. Let me get back to the screen. Um, if you, ah, it froze on me. It's not, oh, there we go. Not the fault of the software, the fault of the computer. Uh, Exodus 21, if you buy a Hebrew servant, that's NIV, uh, CSB, Hebrew slave, new JPS, Hebrew slave, TLV, Hebrew servant. So obviously there's the debate. One says servant, one says slave. I would say servant because of the notion that we have of slave. Now the servant did belong to the master. The servant in that sense was the master's possession. The master could not abuse the servant. But the servant was not kidnapped in a foreign land, sold into slavery, and then a slave for life. The servant would serve, a Hebrew servant specifically, would serve for six years and go free in the seventh, unless he said, no, I love my master, I want to stay here for life. And then he would serve up until the year of Jubilee, if he lived that long, the 50th year, and then he would go free. So it's it's debatable. Dulos is, is a maybe leans a bit more to slave versus servant bond slave. Some would translate the Greek, uh, but specifically slavery in the old Testament, it, it, because of the use of the term in modern language and what it conveys, I think it's better to say servant, the Hebrew servant than a Hebrew slave, but it's, it's debatable. Obviously uh, this is Arshavin, but a number. At what age does a child become responsible for their sin before God and could face separation if death occurred? Thank you. Okay, so we understand that even though there is nothing in the Bible called the age of accountability, I would hear about that in the church in which I would say the age of accountability. Well, this one died before the age of accountability. There is, there is nothing explicit in the Bible called the age of accountability. But there are numerous texts in scripture which talk about children not knowing the difference between good and evil. Maybe the first such text is Deuteronomy 139 comes to mind that your children that didn't know the difference between good and evil. So, so yeah, a child's responsible for his or her actions. And a two-year-old child, when, when mommy says, sit down, and the child goes, no. Well, that child is rebelling. That, that child is disobeying. Right, Proverbs says that foolishness is in the, the bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline drives it out. 
So we, we understand that by nature we're fallen and will disobey and rebel. And some would say, well, that's why there is no age of accountability. Everyone's guilty. And, and that's why Catholics would baptize babies or others would baptize babies. And Calvinists would say it's only the elect babies that are saved, etc. That's a whole other debate. And it's a worthy debate. But my understanding is Isaiah 7, before the child knows how to choose the good and refuse the evil, passages like that, Matthew 18, Jesus saying, let the little children come to me for such is the kingdom of God, that there's still a certain innocence among children. And, and therefore, children, a, a five-year-old child cannot be sentenced for, for a crime that they'll be put to death for. You know, that would not happen under our legal system. They would not have the capacity to understand the, what murder actually is or, or certain things like that. But is there a set age? No. The Bible does not give us a set age, and therefore that is debatable. And this is Axpeer. These are Twitter handles. What evidence is there for it dating the book of Daniel at the 6th century B.C.? All right, we, we do have Daniel, of course, included in the Septuagint. So it was considered sacred scripture at least a couple hundred years before the time of Jesus. You do have parts of Daniel represented among the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that indicates, again, a status of importance being among other scriptural scrolls. We do have, of course, the New Testament referencing it. Some critical scholars have claimed that Daniel is written in the second century BC, that Daniel does not go back to the sixth century, that it's just mythological tales about a mythological Daniel and other people that never existed. And that the reason it is so accurate in unfolding some of the prophecies with uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, who sought to defile the temple and the Jewish rebellion and it seems to accurately describe certain things in history with the Babylonian Empire and then the Medo-Persian Empire and then the Greek Empire, that it seems to describe these things so accurately it must have been written after the fact because the critical scholars don't believe in the power of prophecy. Uh, others claim that there are inaccuracies, that when you go back to the 5th, 6th century, that you'll see that there are inaccuracies and names that are wrong and people that didn't exist at certain times, and that proves it was written later. Uh, while there are certain historical problems identifying an individual or two in Daniel, who is this one that's being spoken of, because we don't have a clear historical record, there are other things from Daniel that are very much in keeping with the, the times and the history of, of Babylon uh, as Daniel is placed. That's one thing. Uh, a second thing is that there's not only prophecy about the, Greco, the, the Greek empire, but also the Roman empire. And that would be after any date that the critics come up with. So how did Daniel get that right? As well as I would argue messianic prophecy. So clearly Daniel is a prophetic book and you must recognize it's supernatural inspiration. But a good argument can be had in terms of looking at the nature of the Aramaic language that's used. Gleason Archer and some other scholars have demonstrated that it does not fit the later Qumran Aramaic that would have been closer to a second century date. Daniel chapter 2, verse 4 to chapter 7, verse 28 uh, is, is the Aramaic portion of the book. And that in point of fact, it 
it seems to reflect uh, an, an older Aramaic form, be called more like Middle Aramaic, and which would be something that would be dated to the 6th century BC. So the Aramaic is in keeping with an early date. But can we prove that it was written? And no, you, you can't prove it unless you could unearth uh, unless you could unearth documents that were that old. We don't have any biblical manuscripts that are that old. But you can make a good case for it being just as the Bible says, that the things literally happened at that time. The New Testament presupposes that Daniel really lived and prophesied these things and it's not a mythological character. Okay, we come back. I'm going to switch over to some great questions that have been posted on our Facebook page as we answer your big Bible theology questions. Not just specific verses, but larger questions that have been posted for us. Thanks for your participation. Your questions make the show what it is on our Friday broadcast. Back with you momentarily. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us today on the Line of Fire. The smile you hear on my voice, or if you're watching, see on the screen is genuine. It is my joy to be with you on the air. It's Friday, which means you've got questions, we've got answers before I get into some great questions posted on Facebook, and I asked, I asked this time not for specific verse questions as much as for bigger theme questions, and we got tons and tons, so I'm extending this over a, a couple of days of, of answering these questions. If you are anywhere near Oceanside, California, join me Saturday night, so tomorrow night, Sunday morning. It'll be the same message, so come anytime you can, unless you want to hear me bring the same message three times. Uh, Calvary Chapel in Oceanside. I'm going to be ministering on a more sure word of prophecy and also be doing a book signing for my book, The Real Kosher Jesus. And we'll talk about messianic prophecy and, and how that gives us assurance about the reliability of the scriptures. All right, so if you're anywhere near Oceanside, California, Calvary Chapel in Oceanside, join me Saturday night service and two Sunday morning services. All right. Uh, Aaron asked this question. Why did God allow concubines with David, Abraham, and others when his intended order in the Garden of Eden and New Testament was one man, one wife? Is this a cultural allowance? Aaron, remember when Jesus is asked in Matthew 19 and parallels in the Gospels, when he's asked about divorce by the Pharisees, and as, as we know, very well known in New Testament scholarship, Jewish scholarship, that the two Pharisaical camps that existed in Yeshua's day were the camp of Hillel and the camp of Shammai. The camp of Hillel became the predominant camp, uh, camp in Pharisaical Judaism. The camp of, of, of uh, or the house of, of Shammai considered to be the more strict between them. But they had debates about various subjects, including divorce. And, and according to the house of Hillel, you could divorce your wife for any reason. And perhaps that was looked at as the compassionate thing to do because if you're not happy with her, we'll divorce her. And the house of Shammai, the school of Shammai said, no, it's, it's only if there's adultery committed. And they come, the Pharisees come to Yeshua, to Jesus, to ask him, where does he stand? And basically his stance is in harmony with, with the house of Shammai. 
but here, here's the point. The point is that when he says divorce should only be for sexual immorality, they say, well, then why did Moses, Deuteronomy 24, why did Moses have us write a bill of divorce? In other words, that's not the only condition given in Deuteronomy 24. Why did Moses do that? So this is, this is given as a law from Sinai, all right? A law for divorce. And, and Jesus says, it's because of the hardness of your hearts. It's not the way it was at the beginning. In other words, God's intent was one man, one woman together for life. No divorce, no separation ever. One man, one woman together for life. That was God's intent. That was God's desire. The two become one flesh. What God's joined together, don't let anyone tear asunder. That was God's heart and God's intent. But because of the hardness of human heart, because of human sin, because of human weakness, God instituted divorce. And, and it was part of the law, but it wasn't his ideal. The same way polygamy, concubines, that was never God's ideal as expressed in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, as reiterated by Jesus in Matthew 19, four through six, as reiterated by Paul in, in Ephesians five, where it is analogous to Christ and the church, the Messiah and the body, right? Joined together, one for life. Contrary to that, there were cultural accommodations. There were things that God allowed that were part of the culture that were not his ideal. So he gave warnings about them, Deuteronomy 17, to the, the, the king should not have many wives. We see what happens with Solomon because of it. David had a lot of problems because of it. We see polygamy always painted in a negative light consistently in the Hebrew Bible, even concubines with debates coming up and jealousies and things like that. But it was also a, a way to preserve the human race to pass on the, 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 the seed of Israel because often the, the wife was unable to have a child or, or difficulties would come in childbirth. And, and sometimes this was the only way to perpetuate seed. So it was never ideal, never God's ideal, clearly contrary to what he laid out and contrary to the New Testament order. Why do I say that? Well, number one, Jesus tells us what God's intent was in the gospels. Number two, Paul says for leaders that they're only to have one wife, right? So clearly dealing with polygamy there. I don't think divorce was the issue there, but polygamy and, and divorce, totally separate issue, right? As far as that discussion, but polygamy, husband of one wife. And then believers were to follow the example of the leaders. So over time, that would become the norm, even in a society that was polygamous. Uh, Johnny Mack, not Pastor John MacArthur, but Johnny Mack on <clears throat> Facebook. Why do people deny the doctrines of grace when they're so clearly seen on every page from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Now, obviously there's hyperbole there. There are plenty of passages where there's no mention of grace. And there are plenty of passages in the Bible dealing with law and you're blessed if you obey and you're cursed if you disobey. And Jesus gives high and lofty requirements for following him. Unless you leave everything, you can't be my disciple. Unless you deny yourself, take up the cross, you can't be my disciple, etc. So, uh, there is a little hyperbole to say found on every page from Genesis to Revelation, just to be honest. But I would say people reject the doctrines of grace for a few reasons. One reason is it can be overstated. It can be overstated in such a way that it becomes untrue. It can be overstated in such a way that it goes beyond what scripture says. Hence my book, Hyper Grace. I reject 
an exaggerated doctrine of grace that goes beyond what scripture says. And you can go beyond anything in the Bible. You can exaggerate any characteristic of God. You can exaggerate the love of God until there's no holiness. You can exaggerate the holiness of God until there's no mercy. You can exaggerate the mercy of God until there's no justice. You can exaggerate, overemphasize anything. So some have overemphasized grace in such a way that it's an excuse for sin or a license for sin. So that's why some people reject it. Others reject it because they have a hard time really believing that God just forgives because he's good. They have a hard time wrapping their minds around it. So I, God just forgives me because Jesus died for me. He, he genuinely forgives me. I don't have to spend like the next 20 years in penance. I don't, I don't have to like fix everything I ever did before I get forgiven. Okay, I stole money from a lot of people. It's going to take me like five years to earn enough money to pay everybody back that I stole. Then I have to find them and what I can be forgiven now. While I try to make restitution, I can be forgiven now. A lot of us, it blows our mind. It's hard to understand. So some don't receive it because it's, it's exaggerated. It's presented in a wrong way, in a false way, and in a biblical way. Others don't receive it because it's, oh, I got to do, what do I do? I have to do something. I have to, yeah, believe, trust God. No, no, no. What do I do? How many hours do I pray a day? How many, how many weeks do I have to fast to, to get forgiven? What, what do I have to do? And how long do I have to do it? And it's, it's hard for some people to receive a free gift from God. And others that don't understand grace think that, that it, it, again, gets you out the easy way that now you can just live however you live. But true grace changes us. The true reception of grace changes us. Okay, let's see here. Uh, Brock, I've noticed that you're a pro-Israel. Not that anything's wrong with that per se. I'm just confused about a couple of things when taking a pro-Israel stance. One, in what ways ought we, to, we as Christians support Israel and why? Two, right now, Israel's in a state of apostasy and unbelief, generally speaking. How do we reconcile our support for Israel in light of their current apostasy? Thank you so much, Dr. Brown. Love your work. Brock, great questions. Okay, number one, we stand with Israel. I'm going to explain what that means. But first, let me say this. We stand with Israel because we recognize that God himself has chosen Israel, that Israel has suffered much as a result of being chosen, that right now to this day is not fully experiencing all of the blessings of God because it's not fully in right relationship with God. But we recognize that the God who scattered the Jewish people is the one who brought them back. The only possible explanation I have for the modern state of Israel is that God regathered the Jewish people. I also recognize that Satan wants to wipe the Jewish people out. Hence, the continual world hatred of Israel. If you missed my article last week, When Anti-Semitism is Non-Anti-Semitism, you can read it on the Ask Dr. Brown website, askdrbrown.org. And you'll see the demonic nature of Jew hatred that continues to burn and boil to this day. That being said, that being said, we recognize that God has regathered the Jewish people back to the land. So modern Israel has been reestablished by God. We recognize Satan wants to wipe the Jewish people out. Therefore, we stand with and support Israel. Again, I'll define what I mean by that in a moment. Secondly, through much of church history, the church has persecuted the Jews and said God is finished with the Jewish people. And this is a recognition that that is not true. And it's a way to undo some of the ugliness of the past. And evangelical love for Israel and support for Israel has helped wash away a lot of the stain of anti-Semitism in church history. And number three, 
We recognize that the gospel came from the Jewish people to the Gentile world. And therefore, there is a sense of love and solidarity with the Jewish people. So we stand with them. We support the modern state of Israel. We want to see Israel treated rightly and fairly. We recognize that there are surrounding nations wanting to wipe Israel out and chanting death to Israel and living just with a desire to wipe out the Jewish people in the land. Therefore, as we see Israel surrounded by hostile armies with hundreds of thousands of missiles pointed at Israel at any given moment, we stand with Israel, the best and truest democracy in the Middle East. However, as friends, we don't agree with everything Israel does. As friends and family, when we feel Israel is not treating Palestinians rightly, we say so. When we have a difference with Orthodox Judaism and their treatment of Messianic Jews in the land, we say so. When we recognize what a worldly lost city Tel Aviv is, we say so. And we pray for the salvation of the lost sheep of the house of Israel without idealizing uh, and sentimentalizing our attachment. Uh, the last thing that I prayed for with our team or our tour group in Israel last week or two weeks ago, laid hands on each of them and asked for God to give them a burden for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So not just a heart to stand with Israel, but a burden the salvation of Jewish people. So we don't idealize, we don't sentimentalize, we don't exaggerate uh, Israel's role in the Middle East and, and, and the good qualities of Israel. We recognize many wonderful qualities and many ethical qualities and many qualities uh, from the people of Israel that stand out, that stand out from, from the, the rest of the culture and world there. But we also recognize Jewish people fallen, needing the Savior, and, and, and often very evidently needing the Savior. And as friends and family, we, we call them out accordingly. But fundamentally, with solidarity, saying we stand with you, your friends, praying for your well-being. We believe God brought you to the land. We're not with those that want to see you wiped out and destroyed. But here's where we have some difference. We'll be right back. Give us strength to always do what's right. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. All right, I can't believe it. Just one segment left on our Friday broadcast. Not taking calls today, answering some great questions. There were so many questions posted on Facebook and Twitter last week when I solicited big theology, big Bible questions. I thought, just got to devote another day to it. Remember, again, I'm in California this weekend in Santee, California for a uh, Jewish apologetics conference. Uh, you can find the info on my website, sdrbrown.org. So that's uh, tonight and tomorrow. And then on Saturday night, Sunday morning, Calvary Chapel in Oceanside. Sarah, I don't have a Bible in front of me right now, but I'm, uh, obviously you're familiar with the woman caught in adultery story. So yes, John 8 verses 1 through 11. I've read that it isn't in the earliest documents of scripture. Can you please explain when, how, why it was added? Why should believe it really happened due to the above mentioned? Thanks. Okay. The placing of it in John's gospel in the eighth chapter is highly controversial. There are many manuscripts that don't have it there. There's a manuscript where it occurs in the gospel of Luke. There are other displaced accounts. Can we say for sure that that belongs in the eighth chapter of the gospel of John. Most textual critics I'm aware of would say no. It is, it is not there with certainty. However, my position and the position of many others is 
that we have it in enough copies of documents and we have it in different places indicating that this was a real account that took place. And because it was so often quoted and referred to by the church over the centuries, that indicates to me that it actually did take place. So whether it belongs there or someone else, somewhere else is highly debatable. Whether it really happened to me is less debatable. I understand this as real. It rings true. I believe there's enough manuscript evidence for it and enough early church evidence for it to support it. My viewpoint there. Um, Will, why does God create some people he knows will end up in hell? So this would be the, the theory that God, upon creating each individual, is able to see in advance how that person will live, what that person will do, whether that person will believe in Jesus or not. Therefore, there's no reason to create anyone if that person is going to end up in hell. The problem with that thought is you now have a non-real world. In, in other words, the only way that we come to where we are, that we make decisions that we make, that we live the way we live, is because of the other people in this world with whom we intersect. And, and if there is no intersection with unbelief, if there's no intersection with sin, if there's no intersection with those who reject the gospel, we end up not being who we are. So the only way that things work, if God's going to give us free will, is that he has to create a world in which people can choose evil or choose good, can believe or not believe. And, and if, he, if, he only, if he only creates those that are going to choose good, then choose good in comparison. Maybe they chose good because they saw evil, right? Maybe the reason that you came to faith was because you saw what happened to a non-believer that fell away from the Lord and died a miserable death, and it, it was a great warning to you. Maybe you came to faith because you weren't walking with God, and your friends weren't walking with God, and two of them died in a, in a car wreck, and, and God used that to wake you up to come to faith. It, you see what I'm saying? You, you have to now take all the other players out, and there, there's no world anymore. So God created a world in which people could freely choose to love him, or freely choose to reject him. In ourselves, we cannot save ourselves, but we can, by his grace, receive his offer of salvation or reject it. And this way, God now has a family of those who freely chose to follow him and be with him forever. And he is also perfectly right and just in punishing those who chose to refuse him and disobey him. And this way he displays both his mercy and his justice and is dealing with the human race. Uh, if you've never watched my debate with Professor Bart Ehrman on the Bible and the problem of suffering, just go to our YouTube channel, Ask Dr. Brown, A-S-K-D-R Brown on YouTube, and type in Ehrman, that's E-H-R-M-A-N, E-H-R-M-A-N, and you'll find that I take up some of these issues in the debate. Uh, Nathaniel, does the Divine Council worldview as espoused by Dr. Heiser and others, have any merit? So Dr. Heiser, Dr. Michael Heiser and I have similar academic backgrounds, both with PhDs from secular universities in Hebrew Bible and ancient Near Eastern languages. 
So we, we read the same literature when, when we were in college and grad school. We studied similar texts. And you have text in the Ugaritic language. Some call it Ugaritic, but in New York we called it Ugaritic. Uh, texts that were discovered late 1920s, early 1930s in what today would be uh, Syria, Rosh Shamra. And these texts were in a language very close to Hebrew, but several hundred years earlier than the Hebrew Bible. And uh, it, it was a treasure trove of texts. That's the very first class I had in grad school was, was Ugaritic with Professor Baruch Levine, who became my, my mentor through grad school, major dissertation supervisor. And we would read these texts and they would talk about the Council of the Gods. And Ale, which in, in Hebrew is just the word for God, Ale, Eloah, Elohim, related words. And uh, he was the, the chief God, the chief of the pantheon. And you had, you know, goddesses like Asherah and other gods like Baal and, and, and Motu, which is, is Mavet, death in, in, in Hebrew, and Yom, the sea god, and Litanu, which is Leviathan, Leviathan in Hebrew. Uh, these different deities and Ale, God would sit in the, the council of the gods. And you have clear parallels with very similar texts in the Hebrew Bible. Now, some would say Psalm 82 should not be interpreted in that way that God sits in the council of the gods, but it's God judging men and says, you're just men, you're not gods at all. And, and, you can find a debate about that subject between Dr. James White, his understanding of the passage, and Dr. Michael Heiser, his understanding of the passage. But certainly, the idea number one of God, so now coming to the Bible, Yahweh being the greatest of all gods, yeah, of course. Exodus 15, who is like you? Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? In the ancient world, there were these other beings that were worshipped as gods, these idols, the, God says in Exodus, I'm going to judge the gods of Egypt. There were these deities, these beings that were worshipped. We could say they were demons or fallen angels, all right? But they were considered gods by the people, these other spiritual powers that certainly existed. And God was saying, I'm the only true God. I, I sit enthroned over all the other so-called gods. And ultimately, they're not gods at all. They're not really creators. They are all created beings. And these are ones that are in rebellion. Now, the New Testament takes us behind the scenes with Satan and demons in an organized form, Ephesians 6, right? Like an organized army with, with, with clear hierarchical structure. And, and the Old Testament parallel for that would be the, the, the council of the gods, fallen angels, demonic powers, whoever you want to slice that. If you just said fallen angels, the bottom line is that, that there's only one who is truly God. Hence, absolute monotheism. There's only one who is truly God. But there are terms like monolatry, which is worship of one true God above the others. There's henotheism, which is the recognition of these other deities, but not equal to the one true God. So certainly that was the background in the Old Testament. And Dr. Heiser rightly opens that up. But he would be the first to say, and we would affirm it, that only one is truly God. All the others are, are not really, they're gods with a small g. They are created beings and they will be judged by the one true God. So, yeah, these things are, 
commonly known in ancient, ancient recent studies, how they're applied to the Old Testament is, is the relevant question. Um, let's just see. Cameron, last question. Positive confession, is it possible to take it too far and wind up performing witchcraft by commanding carnal things like money and Cadillacs to manifest themselves? It seems to me there's a difference between declaring God's word announcing the rule of the kingdom, commanding sickness to leave, and trying to change the physical world by influencing the vibrations of the universe with my words. Hope this makes sense. Thanks for answering. You the man, man. All right, Cameron, this is obviously a question that's been around for a few decades with the Word of Faith movement. Positive confession is biblical and very powerful, meaning confess the truth of what Scripture says. This is who God is. This is what he's promised. The Word of God's on my lips. The Word of God's in my heart. Joshua 1, 8, Proverbs 4, 20 through 22, Colossians 3, 16, John 15, 7. The word of God in my heart, on my lips, I speak it, I recite it, I repeat it, I confess it. Amen and amen and amen. And I speak about myself what God says about myself. and I declare about myself what God says about myself. Absolutely. But the idea that I, through the power of my words, can create realities to manifest. Oh, that's not the Bible. Obviously, our words have power, right? Proverbs 18, life and death are in the power of the tongue. We recognize that. But I'm going to confess a Cadillac into being. I'm going to confess. No, no, no. You know, it's, it's like people fail their test and said, well, that, you know, I'm going to declare things that were not as though they were. I passed it. No, you didn't pass it. No, you didn't pass it. If you're in debt, don't confess that you're not in debt. Confess that God is faithful and God will help you get out of debt as you honor his principles. That's, that's what you confess. God, you're faithful and your principles work. And by your grace, I'm going to follow you. And as I follow your principles, I'll get out of debt. You confess that. But no, you know, you're exactly right in what you're saying. All right, we're out of time. See you in California. <laughs>